up everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tier 1 Podcast. Uh, today on the show I was lucky enough to be joined by um, someone who was, well, they were really generous with their time and uh, it was great listening to the stories they shared. It's um, another Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, uh, this time he's under the legendary Leandro Issa, who's also known as Brodinho, uh, who's, I think, teaches at Evolve MMA still. And uh, this guy was one of the first people to go from white belt to black belt all at Evolve, which is kind of now uh, one of the most legendary legendary gyms for MMA around the world. Uh, and this guy has travelled all over the world with his with his job from really humble beginnings in Kilmarnock in Scotland, and now lives in Thailand teaching jiu-jitsu uh, and also teaching English and uh, to uh, children here. And they uh, can. Find out more about him at Bangkok Fight Lab, where he teaches on Fridays and Sundays. If you want to go down, if you want to go down and have a class there, is of course powerful Colin Slider, and here he is. Okay, Colin, um, welcome to the Tier One Podcast. Thank you very much for taking time out of your Saturday to come Sun- sit with me. Sunday, Sunday, oh, Sunday. That's yeah. how. Obviously, I'm not working, so every day is a Saturday to me. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, uh, as we, as I just said, we're going to just this for as long as you want to go and um, just find out a bit about you and, and your life really so right. like I say we usually start these off by um, just kind of finding out a bit about yourself and where you grew up so from Scotland is it? Uh, yeah. yeah so Colin Slider S-L-I-D-E-R yeah. kind of right. an odd name not very many in in my hometown or even in my neighborhood but um, I grew up in a place called Kilmarnock in Scotland Southwest Scotland, about 23 miles from Glasgow. Mm. Fairly small town, uh, kind of light industry. Used to be a coal mining area. My grandfather was a coal miner. Is that kind of what it's known for in the area? Like the coal uh, mining it was. Yeah. And then all the coal mining kind of disappeared in the 1970s, 1980s. Became light industry. There was a carpet manufacturer. Massey Ferguson made tractors, combine harvesters. There was a ball bearing factory. Mm. And the biggest employer in town was Johnny Walker Whiskey. All oh, right. They had a bottling plant in my hometown, which employed, you know, several three, four thousand people. Mm. Uh, as, a, as it was a small town, almost everybody in there had someone in their family who worked for Johnny Walker. Right. Yeah. Well. Wow. So yeah, I did. an aunt. Was there a big drinking community as well? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, did it go hand in hand? Hey, it's uh, it's near Glasgow in Scotland, mm-hmm. of course. <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I live like 50 meters from a pub. Right. And I yeah, think yeah. pretty much everybody lived 50 meters from a pub. Uh, when I was growing up, I had lived, uh, until I was eight years old, lived in a really small, it's called a tenement, mm. which is, uh, we were in the third floor, we'd common toilet with, with the other people who lived on the same floor. Right. Uh, we had a two bedroom, we didn't call it an apartment, it was a flat, two bedroom flat. Uh, we moved when I was eight years old because by that time there were, my mother and my father, there were five children. Oh really? Uh, by that time yeah. I had two older sisters and two younger sisters and me. Alright, so just old yeah. girls in the oh, so, <laughs> You can imagine, five, five yeah. kids uh, and the two parents in a two bedroom place. Right, packed. Uh, I remember that we had one one of the bedrooms was on a like a tower. It was like a curved like a turret you'd see in a castle. So it was yeah. a curved round bedroom, 
Yeah, and I went over at Crossroads, and there used to be lots of car crashes at that Crossroads. Remember that? Mm. And the school I went to was directly across the Crossroads. Okay. Yeah? So, These are my memories of that place. Yeah, yeah. My other memory of that place was my sister, who was immediately below me, my sister Margaret, headbutting me. And uh, my nose was bleeding for hours. Oh, and I think I ended How up. Old going, were you? I, I would be about seven. And I remember thinking we ended up going to the hospital because after a couple of hours it was still bleeding. Oh, but it, did that to say it and everything? No, it wasn't broken. Oh, okay. It was just bad nosebleed. Yeah. What was yeah. it growing up with four sisters? I've got one sister. She's ample. <laughs> 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 yeah, actually, it was actually it was fine. Did you get on well, you got on really yeah. reasonably well. As we got older, uh, my one of my older sisters, two older sisters were twins. Um, one of those twins was blind, so she didn't actually live with us very often. Mm. She would come visit every two weeks. The majority of the time, she stayed at a place called the School for the Blind in, Edim in Edinburgh, okay. which is like 60 miles away. Yeah. And every two weeks, she would come and come back home for the weekend. Mm. Uh, as we got older, you know, my older sister, the other older sister, kind of became a bit of a tear away, you know, giving parents some problems. Uh, and I think when she was around 16 or 17, she just run off and uh, now she lives with the boyfriend or husband somewhere in London. Right. Uh, my blind sister is still, she lives in Edinburgh, I think with her family. Um, we moved when I was eight years old because my mother was pregnant again. And I had, a, so I had a, another brother, finally, another brother, ah. uh, when I was eight years old. He still lives in my hometown. He's got his own um, little engineering company that does uh, like steel work, some fabrication work, mm. sign, sign making, sign painting, that kind yeah. of thing. And he's quite successful. Ah, yeah. Cool. And his wife runs um, a gym and, what do they call it? Wellness center. All right. Wellness yeah, Centre yeah. for Women, specifically ah. for women. Okay, cool. So uh, he's, he's doing quite well. And what did um, eight-year-old Colin Slider want to be when he, when he grew up? Well, my father was a bus driver, so I wanted to be a bus driver. <laughs> right, but, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, not a wealthy, we're not a wealthy family. Mm. My father drove long-distance buses from Glasgow to London, Okay. which is a 400-mile trip. Yeah. So, for example, he would leave on a Monday, come back on the Wednesday, leave Monday morning, come back Wednesday night. He'd have a day off, and then he would do the same trip again. So that was his life. So he's away a lot, yes. He was away a lot. My mother, as long as I can remember, my mother always held down at least two, sometimes three, like part-time cleaning jobs. Oh, wow. She would clean, be cleaning a, a, I remember she cleaned a pub in the mornings. Mm. And then she would do an office somewhere, and then in the afternoons she would work yeah, at the yeah. school that I was at as a cleaner. All right. So she worked like three jobs. Yeah. Uh, my father was away a lot. He's obviously working a lot. Uh, so yeah, we were never wealthy. Mm. Uh, so there were so there were six of us. It was four girls, two two boys, and then my oldest sister, the one who became a bit of a tear away. She actually had a child when she was around sixteen or seventeen. Right. Uh, before she had left home, and my parents adopted that son, that child, oh. uh, and he became another boy in the house. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So man, that must have been a really interesting upbringing. Like, we're just such like different family yeah, dynamics. Yeah, but it was. Um, 
know, as a child, you don't really notice a lot of the yeah. tensions between. Things. Yeah. My parents actually got separated, divorced, when I was around 14 or 15 years old. Mm. My father joined the Mormons. Really? Yeah. yeah. What prompted um, that? I remember that his sister, my father's sister, had joined the Mormon church. Mm. And, and was he always quite a religious no, person? not or? at all. Oh, right. My father was a chain smoker, you know, two packs of cigarettes a day. Mm. Uh, half bottle of whiskey at night. If he was home, he'd sit in his chair, half bottle of whiskey, fall asleep in the chair. Um, there was obviously, there was a lot of tension in my parents' marriage. Mm. You know, uh, there was quite an, quite an age gap between my parents. Um, my father, I think it was 15 years age difference. Okay. Right. Um, and by the time I got to my teens, uh, my parents were not really on speaking terms. Mm. So probably the best thing that could happen is that they got separated. Or separated. Yeah. So how, why he joined the Mormons, I don't know. He just he told me that his sister had been speaking to him about it, and he and then he saw the light. Oh. And I think that was the final straw in their marriage. Right. Yeah, because uh, nothing against the Mormons or yeah. Latter-day Saints, but um, part of their requirement is that ten percent of your income is given oh, to the church. Right, and right. we were never, we yeah. never had, couldn't spare ten percent. Especially you know, six kids, six kids yeah, in the house, seven kids in the house because because uh, oh, the adoption. adoption yeah, and uh, so yeah, my parents got divorced, mm. uh, and that was fine, but but. Uh, didn't really bother me too yeah. much. Yeah. I, I wasn't really particularly close to my father. Okay. We were, most of us were much closer to our mother than our father. Yeah. Yeah. And was it your mum that usually looked after you kind of after yes, school? Absolutely. She done all that cleaning up yes. the school and stuff. You just yeah. kind of go back home with her. And, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, my mother was. Uh, Sounds like a hard Held the lady, family definitely. together. Yeah. Absolutely. My mother held the family together. What do you think the best lesson you learned from your mum was? Hard work. You have to work hard. No, mm, it sounds like you have to look saying. after your kids. You have to look after your family. That mm. was number one. So yeah. You have to sacrifice your your own your own uh, happiness sometimes mm. to look after your kids. And I think she did that huge, mm. hugely, man. Yeah, bigly as Donald Trump would say. Yeah, bigly. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, she's sacrificed so much to raise all the kids. And we were, although we're not wealthy, I don't think any of us ever felt deprived or yeah we always had clothes or yeah you like sometimes in winter you would go to you go to bed with your coat on <laughs> right and other coats on top of the bed yeah because it was too cold and you couldn't afford to put the heating on mm. but uh i don't think we were ever felt deprived we were never hungry you know food was always pretty simple but we didn't eat out my mother always put food on the table for us what year were you born? 1961, which makes me 58 in a couple of months' time. Yeah. Is your mum and dad still around? My mum's still around. My father yeah. died. Uh, I can't remember the exact year. I died, died when I was in my yeah. early 20s. Right. So we've been dead quite a while. Yeah. My mother is still around. Uh, she was born 1935, which makes her 84 this year. Uh, she suffered. She lives on her own, uh, still in the same house that we grew up in. Oh. Uh, she's visited quite regularly by my brother and sister who still live in my hometown. Mm. Uh, and, but she suffers from really bad arthritis. Right. 
because she's yeah. not very so mobile. She's, she's not very mobile. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, what was the next step? Like, wh when did you kind of uh, leave home, and did you go to university, or what, mm. what was the plan? Yeah, I was the first in my family, first amongst it, any of the family or my extended family that I know of, who went to university. I went to a university in Aberdeen, in Northern Scotland. Mm. I studied engineering. That would have been 1979, when I was 18. I was there for four years. Scottish University course is four years, as opposed to England, which is three. Mm -hmm. I was there for four years, graduated in 1983. My bachelor's degree in engineering. And did you did you uh, did you enjoy your time at university? Was it what yeah. was it like? I haven't had um, a bad go. I think I remember during what they call the fresher fresher week, which yeah. is your first week at university. That one of the one of the course counselors or teachers or whoever it was saying that university was a place which was much about the social life as about the studying. And I think I took that to heart. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a lot of emphasis was placed on the social social life, or to be more specific, probably drinking a lot of drinking. Right. And what were your passions around this time? Like, did had you found any like martial arts yet? Or I had done karate when I when I had been younger, mm. so you still carried on doing a little bit of karate. But I wasn't passionate about martial arts. It was just something I did. Right. Yeah. The passion didn't come until much later in, in, mm. in my life. And we'll get there. Uh, yeah. So. I graduated Aberdeen University in 1983. Uh, I saw an advertisement in the local Aberdeen newspaper, it's called the Press and Journal. And it was a seismic survey company looking for people to work on a seismic survey ship. Mm. The ship was in Aberdeen. Aberdeen's okay. a big oil and gas port. Right. And I had the interview on the ship. The interview, I met uh, the guy who was in charge, was an Australian and he asked, I was an electrical engineer, that's what I studied. And he asked me, the interview was, here are the manuals for this piece of equipment. And this is the day, this is before computers and yeah, microelectronics. <laughs> and this was basically a fancy tape recorder and it filled the entire room on the ship. It was, if you know, a 19 inch rack for equipment. And it was like six 19 inch racks. Each rack is five and a half feet high, 19 inches wide. And it's yeah. just filled with all these these batches of electronics. And he gave me, he showed me the manuals and there were these six huge A4, A4 manuals about three inches thick each. And he said, I want you to tell me how we set the time on this piece of equipment. <laughs> I'll give you half an hour. So sat me down and yeah, I, f I figured, figured out how to set the time. And you had to actually solder these links on a board inside. So every day when they wanted to change the date, you had to pull the board out Resolder the links oh, and put it back in. So you yeah, a different yeah. set of links for each number in the date. Yeah, yeah. And you have to pull this out, push it back in. The daylight savings is a bit. Yeah. Nice. So <laughs> that's how. You, so every day somebody had to pull the board out, resolder the links. Yeah. And then push it back in. Yeah. To set the date Jeez. on this piece of equipment. Yeah. I got the job. Uh, I got paid. Uh, those in those days it was um, considered a good pay. I got paid a thousand US a month. Mm. You know. This was 1983, coming straight out of university with no job experience, but it was working offshore in the North Sea. Mm -hmm. you, you did a 12-hour shift, either work 12 till 12, either you know, 12 noon till 12 midnight, yeah. or midnight to, to noon. And uh, you did that for two months, 
supposedly two months and then you would get a month off right in reality that's how they sold the job two months on one month off. in reality people ended up doing three months four months five months yeah and, and then one um, or two weeks off and then right. back, back to work you know? uh, but yeah I, I was with that company for a couple of years and that um coming straight out of university that must have been a tough job it was a hard to, job yeah. because it, it, it was quite a physically demanding job mm. on this ship they didn't have a separate crew to handle all the, the ship's work right so you had the seismic crew Okay. Uh, they had a captain, captain, chief of and chief officer who would like steer the ship, mm. effectively. They had their own ship's engineering crew who would look after the main engines and generators. Yeah. But the people doing all the painting, maintenance, tying the ship up, whatever, were all the seismic crew. Okay. So, so we were, doubled doubled, up. We were yeah. doubling up. Um, so yeah, it was a total change to anything I'd done before, mm. but it was a lot of fun. Hopefully that um, the hard hard work ethic that it your mum instilled. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Helped it. You know, and and. When you're on a sh- when you're on a ship or you're working offshore, what else are you going to do? Yeah. There was no internet. All oh, right. So you managed to save up a bit of money so, as well. So yeah, you save yeah. money because you can't spend it. Yeah. There's no like Amazon so, on your phone. So and it's a dry <laughs> ship, so there's no alcohol. Because oh, okay. American American owned ship, so there was no alcohol. Okay. There was smoking, but you couldn't smoke in the in the rooms where we were working, called the instrument room or the dog house as we called it. Yeah. There was no smoking. It was air conditioned, filled with electronics. Mm. And the idea was, or what we were told was, if you smoke. And the dirt gets into the electronics and it will fail. Right. So, so there's no smoking. So you wanted to smoke the glass, but yeah. I never smoked anyway. But yeah. a lot of the most guys did. Right. Um, yeah. So you had no choice. You you worked. You had a twelve hour break. So during that, you might you know have a meal, go to sleep for eight hours, get up, mm. read a book. Yeah. Maybe we had what what most people had Walkmans right. with tapes, cassette tapes. Yeah, yeah. No CDs. <laughs> Uh, listen to some music, shoot the shit a bit, and then back to work. How often would you get to go ashore? And um, most projects we were doing would be in port every maybe three or four weeks, just for a couple okay. couple of days. Yeah. And when of course when you're in in port in town, first question is when can we get off the boat? Straight down to the pub. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. That's all anybody was interested in getting roaring drunk and then yeah. back on the boat. Do you have fond memories of those times? Or? Absolutely, yeah. I did that kind of job for a long time. Mm. I was with this company, it was called Seismic Explorations International. With them for two years, I moved to another company called Geosource uh, for another two years before moving out to Asia. But and it was great, it was great fun. It got me to work in Holland, Norway, uh, Gulf of Mexico, Caribbean, so I got to travel yeah. for, for work and, and that, that's great and that I imagine seeing all those kind of places wasn't a standard for someone from Kilmarnock absolutely not living in a, in a no, two bedroom flat um, right and I think not everybody would jump at that kind of job you know it's uh, a lot of people quite happy to stay in their hometown yeah nothing well, wrong with that if that's yeah but what, what do you think was different for you in, in the mindset to jump at something like that some people just, you know, just want to. I didn't never thought, oh, I want to get away. Just thought it would be more a more fun job. Mm. You know, it might open up more opportunities. Mm. And the same, same happened recently. Like I've got a, I've got a daughter. Daughter's twenty three, uh, and about three years ago, 
she was working as a personal trainer in Singapore and she asked me uh, said that if I was offered a job overseas what do you think you think I should take it and I told her you should jump at it because it might never come again the offer and who knows where it will lead to you can stay at home and find a job locally where you're living and that's great but take take a leap it's a bit of a leap of faith you never yeah. know what's going to happen and if it doesn't work out you can always come back home there's always that but, yeah uh, you know i think once once you've been independent like a university was quite independent uh it's difficult to go back home right right mm-hmm. so yeah yeah take the take a leap yeah you have nothing to lose and everything to gain i think and then what what was the next kind of big change after working on these seismic ships the next big change was uh, the company I was with, Geosource, had um, kind of they went bust, and everyone got laid off. So I was I went back to shared a flat with a guy in Aberdeen when I wasn't working. So we went back to Aberdeen, and I got a phone call from from a guy in Great Yarmouth asking me to go for an interview. Uh, went down to Great Yarmouth and he told me that there were two contracts available one was in Norway and the other was in Singapore so I said well I've been to Norway it's been there done that got the t-shirt uh, I've never been to Singapore and so he sent me to, the next week I was on a plane to Singapore oh wow yeah and what was the job it was working for a company called Geosite Services which later become became a group called Oceanics Asia Pacific and they were um, a company which was in the offshore construction business they did underwater inspections underwater surveying Mm. and they wanted to set up what was uh, using the same techniques that I'd been in I'd been in the seismic business they wanted to use seismic techniques for doing uh, inspections of specific locations where companies were going to install oil rigs okay right yeah 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 normally when we were doing seismic we were looking deep below the sea the seabed it was oil exploration Mm. but when they wanted to install a platform in a specific location they would use what was called high resolution seismic where the sounds that they bump the pop banging into the seabed are a higher frequency they don't penetrate as much but you get uh, higher definition data right so especially when they're going to put an oil rig on a, on a specific location they are looking for pockets of gas and other obstructions on the seabed they don't want to drill into a pocket of gas because then they have a blowout right yeah uh, so that was kind of different it was still the same technology mm-hmm. but they did other things as well as just the seismic work they did other types of sur- underwater surveys with remotely operated vehicles mm-hmm. Like you've seen in all Titanic movies and whatever, you know, these thing robots that swim yeah. underwater. And they had other other techniques for doing surveys of the seabed. And so we was able to get exposure to those different systems. And it was a different part of the world. What, After, um, sorry? Uh, what year was it that you got to Singapore? Nineteen eighty-seven. Okay. All right. Uh, and I was in their workshop in Singapore for about a month and then I did a project in Papua New Guinea for a couple of months and then they sent me to Abu Dhabi right uh, and I was in Abu Dhabi for about a year in total 
year, year and a half maybe. They sent me there uh, and they told, they had told their client that I was a navigation systems expert. Okay. In the days before GPS, um, ships doing exploration work and, all, and when oil rigs were put onto the position, they used uh, radio navigation systems. So you would have a chain of radio stations on the shore in known locations, you know, four or more, and you would have a receiver on the ship. And there'd be a signal goes from the receiver or from each station to the ship and back. Mm. You measure the time that signal takes, so you know its speed, so you can yeah. calculate the range to each station, and then you triangulate to get the actual ship's position. Right. So you would have guys on shore manning the radio stations, and you have people on, on the ship who were navigation specialists to maintain the navigation equipment on the ship. Mm. So for me, they sent me there and said, you're the navigation specialist. It's a German company doing this work, but they need navigation. So we're providing navigation. You're the navigation expert. I said, what's the navigation systems? <laughs> I, uh, they were, as far as I can say, they were a box on the other side of the instrument room. Right. There was something I never got involved in with yeah, previously, yeah. but we're thrown in at the deep end and just had to survive. Just figure it out. Just figure it out. Yeah, yeah. back to the uh, yeah, final, so, how to change the time. <laughs> yeah, so, but it worked out okay. You know, I was there for a year, year and a half. What was the kind of like the experience like when you first got there compared to? Like, it was hot, man. It was yeah. hot. I remember walking out of the airport in Abu Dhabi, and it was like walking into a sauna. Right. You always think of the desert as being like dry, mm. but perhaps maybe closer to the the sea, it was just the humidity was like hundred percent, and you know, like the temperature was in the high forties. Mm. It was just crazy. Is there anything that stands out between like the culture or the people? Most of my time was spent offshore. Uh, right. So I yeah. would be, we were working within like 20 to 30 kilometers of the shoreline, right. all the way up to the shoreline, mm. along along like a 300 kilometer stretch of, of the coastline from the Abu Dhabi border all the way down to the Saudi border. Right. Um, and I was, I was offshore. They had one main ship and they had like four or five small, smaller boats that went around. They were it was for shallow water seismic, so they would lay all these these boys with sensors in them. They'd let off an explosion. The sound goes down, bounce, the sound bounces off the rocks. And these sensors pick up the sound and then they come up with a 3D picture of the seabed, of what's below the seabed. So these three or four little boats laying all these boys, and each of those had, had navigation systems in it. So I'd be hopping around from these ones to, right. to make sure it was working okay. Yeah. And then back on the main ship, do navigation equipment. Uh, I never really got to see local culture uh, because when I came off the boat, I'd be off on holiday. Yeah. Right. I spent like a couple of nights there. The company had a crew house in Abu Dhabi. Okay. But people didn't go out because it was just so hot. Yeah. And where, where was a holiday destination for you? Did you have anywhere in particular you you enjoyed going? I fell asleep on the beach in Morocco. <laughs> Got the worst sunburn I ever had. Oh, really? Yeah, I oh, was man. in a, I was in a five-star cool. hotel in Morocco. Um, people dressed for dinner. And I had fallen asleep on the beach, like, uh, I must have been five, six hours. When I woke up, I got back to the hotel and I was like, really, I was literally, I was, if you can't see this, I was that color. <laughs> can't see it. So I was bright red. Uh, I just sat in a cold bath. 
all I could wear was like a singlet and a pair of board shorts. Oof. And I went down, I remember going down to the restaurant and they said, cannot come in. Yeah. So I had to eat in my room. Oh, jeez. Uh, so that's where I went to Morocco. Uh, I remember I went to, went to US, uh, France, just mm. whatever. And you eventually ended up back in Singapore, right? I eventually ended up back in Singapore after yeah. about a year and a half. I ended up back in Singapore. Uh, but I did, we did projects all over, all over Asia. So okay. we were working in the Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, mm. China, Japan, Hong Kong, so right. all over. Yeah. Wherever. Some projects might have only been like a couple of weeks and some were three or four months. Right. Yeah. So how did you end up uh, evolve? Well, um, how, and how far of a jump is that? How, it is, we, it's a jump. Is, is that quite a jump? No, you can I, okay, in the I, was, bit. I was based in Singapore yeah. for a long time. Um, 1995, I, I was given the opportunity to get out of the oil and gas business. Mm. And I got into the uh, tele, telecoms, doing repairs of submarine telecoms cables in Malaysia. A company called Time Telecommunications was establishing a, a fiber optic cable network that went all the way around the coastline of Peninsula Malaysia, um, and they wanted a they wanted to set up a subsidiary which would do repairs of that cable if it was broken. Right. It's basically using the same technology that I had been exposed to. Uh, the company I was working for at the time. They started up a joint venture with this Time Telecommunications to, to basically the joint purpose of the joint venture was repair the cable if it's broken. So I brought the expertise of being able to uh, determine what type of equipment would be used to find where the cable is broken, to recover the cable when it's broken, do the repair and put the cable back into the sea and then rebury the cable. So I, had, I was given the task of basically come up with a business plan how many people required for the job how much it's going to cost uh, how we're actually going to do the operation what tech, what equipment we need uh, so I did that and then we set up that, that project and I was there for five years in Malaysia okay yeah and but 95 must have been around when yeah. your daughter, daughter was born right because I'm yeah. 93 as well uh, yes she was born 1995 yeah yeah so so how we got to jiu-jitsu was yeah. In 1999, 2000, uh, the, the uh, company that I had started with in Singapore, they actually asked me if I'd go back and work for them again. Uh, okay. So I did. So they pulled me back to Singapore. Yeah. Uh, and this time I wasn't working offshore. I was their engineering manager. Or I, think it, I think it was the engineering manager was the title. And at that point, was it more, um, did you want to stay in one location yes. more so you could be with the family? Was that a, yes, yeah. so that was a deciding factor. Right. My kids were quite young. Okay, yeah. Uh, my daughter was four years old. I had a son who was, you know, eight or nine years old, and another older son. And I wanted to put them in a school, and not they had been changing schools, right? They'd been right. in Singapore, then they'd been in Malaysia. So I wanted to move and going to stay there. So this was basically an office job. Right. Uh, and they went through the Singapore school system. In my time in Malaysia, I put on weight. Oh yeah? Right? Uh, yeah, I worked a lot. I didn't particularly look after my, my health. Uh, mm. Just ate junk, drank a lot of beer. 
I remember getting back to Singapore and I was uh, 87 kilos. All right. Yeah. And I know the people reading or hearing this yeah. can't see me, but I'm not particularly a big guy, similar size to yourself. Yes. So it was 87 kilos. Uh, I was wearing size 36 inch pants. Oh. And I woke up one day and the biggest size 36 I had, I couldn't close the pants. Oh, so I had to go to work with, you know, with the top button open, just the belt holding my pants together. And that was uh, what decided me, okay, this has got to stop. And, and I just stopped drinking. I bought a book called Body for Life. And I followed the, the program in there for about a year of cardio three days a week, weight training three days a week. Uh, and I lost 14 kilos. It's got down to 72, 73 kilos. Uh, friend of mine, uh, had, was a Aikido instructor and he asked me to try Aikido so I did and I enjoyed it and I did Aikido for you know, nine ten years wow. um, can I just like, put a pin there like how did you have had you always been such a disciplined person because like you yeah, well, I always worked hard I mean I, I was always very focused in work right mm. I, like, I would give everything 100% yeah. to work but it sounds like you got to like a certain way and then just like Right. Yeah. Not again, like you know. Not again. And then yeah. like it was, it was, arts, a, it and then was a, ten years, was, you know. Yeah, it was a, it was a big change. Uh, what I decided was that um, I had to make my health a priority rather than work a priority. So work went from being, I'll be perfectly honest. There was there were times when work was took everything over. Right, work became the number one thing in my life. Uh, but I think at a realization. You know, I'm in my mid-thirties, that uh, work should not be the number one priority in your life. That your your health and your family have to take precedence. Mm. And after that, I made a, a conscious decision that I would not work later than about six o'clock every day, uh, or latest maybe six thirty. And that uh, getting to the gym and doing the exercise was a must. So making that a priority, and then when I was doing Aikido saying, I have to train, mm. and it's still the same now, I have to train everything, you know, that became a priority in, in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. So if you make it a priority in your in your head, then you will do it. But yeah, I understand not everyone can do it, but you yeah. know, uh, for me, I found it quite easy. Yeah, one of the things I used to do, um, just before I came here, I was working at a health club, like working yeah. in, in sales, and one of the most annoying kind of uh, reasons for people not joining out here, like oh, I just don't have enough time. I'm like, yeah, you just don't, it's just not like a priority, is it? It's like you, everyone's got the same amount of hours in the day. And it's yes. just you're deciding to spend yours differently, you know. Yeah, you, um, you do have the time. Yeah, but you have to give up something else. Yeah, to do that. Exactly. Now, people ask me, still ask me now, do you still train in Aikido? And I said, well, I don't. I love Aikido. Yeah, I do. I love Aikido. But if I wanted to go back and train in Aikido, I would have to have to give up some of my jiu-jitsu training. Yeah. And at the moment, can't say what will happen in the future, but at the moment it's not something I'm really willing to do. It's the same for me with um, rock climbing. Like I yeah. really enjoy rock climbing, yeah. but to go rock climbing, I have to kind of take time out yeah. of my so, jiu-jitsu schedule. Uh, right now, yeah. jiu-jitsu is my, yeah. my thing, right? So what is it about that uh, Aikido that you made that had you stuck with it with for a strong period of time? It's, it's kind of like jiu-jitsu. 
there's an infinite number of variations on everything mm. and you can have let's say you invite 10 different instructors to show you a technique you will see 10 different you see the same technique but you see it done 10 different ways mm. so the number of, of possibilities are, is infinite and for someone like me and other people that might not know much about Aikido at all how would you kind of ex- describe uh, uh, to a layman Aikido's got a bit of a bad bad press and uh, people you know guys who fight MMA and whatever say Aikido is not effective but you have to understand that Aikido is not meant for MMA Aikido is a very traditional Japanese martial art and it might be a lot of its techniques might be obsolete it doesn't make them any any less challenging to do Mm. just because something is not practical for MMA doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile doing you know for people who for learning Self-defense, I think, is reasonably reasonably practical. Some of the techniques, but Aikido can also be uh, useful for people who don't want it. not violent people. It can be done very softly, very slow, smooth movements, or it can be done exceptionally hard. You know, high-level Aikido guy who train who has been training a very hard style of Aikido, he will screw you up if you, if you get a hold of him. He's, but um, the Gurkha regiment in Singapore. I'm sure you know you've heard about the Gurkhas, right? Yeah. Right, because the British Army has the Gurkhas. Singapore also has Gurkhas. And one of the martial arts that the Gurkhas train is Aikido. So obviously for, for the Gurkhas to actually train it, they must think that there was something that they can get out of it where they can use in their restraint. Right. Restraint techniques. So, yeah, it's just it's just limitless, the number of different combinations and mm-hmm. techniques. Same as Jiu-Jitsu. So how did it go from Aikido to Jiu-Jitsu? Um, 2009, I actually wanted to do Judo. I had this you know, thing in my head that I wanted to try Judo. Mm. I know my, uh, one of my brothers had done Judo when he was younger. So I wanted, to, I wanted to try Judo. But in Singapore, I couldn't really find a Judo club that had training often enough. Uh, I don't think that if you wanted to learn a martial art once or twice a week is not really enough mm. yeah 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 I think so I couldn't find a club where their timetable suited me they didn't have training often enough or when they were training I wasn't able to make that that time schedule so somebody said try the jiu-jitsu and I tried an, uh, a small local club I think it had a couple of classes there didn't really suit me um, went on Google I found that you know Evolve, Evolve MMA had opened up a gym just a few months previously mm. I went there for what they called a trial class the guy doing the trial class was a guy called Setsuma he's Japanese he was purple belt the instructors had at the time were Setsuma was one he's a purple belt and they had uh, Gordinho Rafael Gordinho you know uh, four, I think at the time he was a fourth degree black belt yeah. Black belt world champion in 97 or 98 I think. And he was the other coach. Uh, so I did the trial class, joined up on the spot, and that's it. I uh, evolved at the time, had one location in Singapore. It was a small gym, they had one mat area, they had two showers, they had about 15 lockers. Uh, so it had only been open a few months. So they would alternate Muay Thai classes with Jiu Jitsu classes. 
But they had classes from like 6.45 in the morning until 10 o'clock at night. So there were classes pretty much all day long. So you could always find a time to train, mm -hmm. which was another issue for people who said they don't have time. Yeah. You know, if this class is available at 6.30 in the morning or 6.45 until 10 at night, yes, you could make a class sometime. Uh, the gym at the time, it was a new gym. Jiu-Jitsu was relatively new in Singapore. There were a couple of local gyms run by uh, Purple Belts and I think Purple Belts, it was Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Singapore, I think it was called. It was run by a guy called Jason Quick. He was a Purple Belt at the time, Black Belt now, under John Will from Australia. There were a couple of others, again run by Purple Belts. Uh, but it all seemed to have a much more professional setup. Mm. And then shortly after I joined, they brought in uh, another couple of Black Belt guys from Brazil, a guy uh, called Almiro Barros and uh, a guy called Leandro Issa. Okay. Leandro Issa had been, uh, I think he was Brown Belt World Champion, and he, and he got his black belt next year, and he'd come, and he became my, like, my coach. Right. You know, I obviously, yeah. as Evolve expanded, expanded to another location, and then the one I was in with only one mat area, they moved in the same building to another unit in the building where they were able to have a much bigger mat area, so they were able to run jiu-jitsu classes and Muay Thai classes simultaneously. So again, you have jiu-jitsu from 6.30 in the morning all the way till 10 at night. So you can always make a class. Um, and I ended up training, as they expanded and they opened up another couple of gyms, they ended up with like 10 or 12 Brazilian black belt professors. Wow. Um, Leandro Issa, or Bradinho as he's called, uh, I would say easily 7 to 75% of my classes in the 10 years I was at Revolve, oh, eight, nine years, nine and a half years at Revolve. Yeah, 70 to 75% of my classes were with him. Right. Although I obviously trained with a lot of the other instructors. Yeah. Uh, but he became, he's the guy I regard as my professor, mm. and he's the guy who gave me my black belt. Yeah. No, I have to say that Professor um, Gordinho. Rafael Gordini. He was there for my first two years. Gave me my blue belt. I got my blue belt at a, it was a, a, when Roger Gracie was in Singapore doing teaching. Teach, oh, really? Roger Gracie was there for a while teaching us. Yeah. Oh, wow. How awesome to get my blue, yeah, yeah. get my blue belt from Roger Gracie. But in Roger Gracie's first first class, I got I got to the class like five minutes before the class or seminar was supposed to start yeah so i wasn't really warmed up right and the first thing he threw was a hip throw and mm -hmm. as i did the hip throw i felt my back just pop <laughs> and, I, yeah. uh, and i was out for like three four oh, days you know yeah. bad back because how old were you when you must have started you i was 48 yeah so not 48 when i started yeah it's not like a 16 year old so that's i got my gonna, i got just like that after a month i was given three stripes with my white wow. belt from Gordino. Uh, because he said I'd obviously done oh, I'd obviously yeah, done martial yeah. arts before and he said then he threw me into the what they called the purple belt class the evolved system was if you had if you were a newbie you went into what's called blue belt class mm. the blue belt the class is targeted to get, get to your blue belt, belt. Yeah, yeah. once you got three stripes on your white belt you were allowed to go into the next level class which they called their purple belt class mm. so after a month he gave me three stripes and he said get into that class so, and I remember 
the majority of students were white belts. There were a few guys who were blue belts with three or four stripes who trained in other countries and had come to Singapore. Singapore gets a lot of people from all over the world. So yeah. There were, there were you know, half a dozen blue belts and maybe 20 white belts. And I remember my first role was with a guy called Jack Visoki. Jack Visoki is an American guy, Midwestern, US uh, wrestler, not particularly a big guy. Um, he was a three-stripe blue belt and he submitted me, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten times <laughs> in like a seven-minute row. So I used him to gauge my progress. Right. And within like six months, he only submitted me four times. Yeah. Progress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I got my blue belt after nine months. So it was considered quite quick. Yes. But then, you know, blue to purple was, you know, two, two and a half years. Well, yeah. Was was it difficult? I imagine, did you get your, your black belt in Aikido, I imagine? Yes. Yeah. Was it... Um, what was the feeling like going from being a black belt to then putting on a white belt again? Was that a, a good, uh, a fulfilling experience to be a beginner or a beginner at something again? Or was it, did, did it take a bit of an ego thing? Or? No, there was absolutely no ego thing in it for yeah. me. Right? I, I understand why, how some people might might feel a bit bad about it, but for me, no. It was something I knew nothing about, so right. I should start at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and you know, Jiu-Jitsu is incredibly humbling. Yeah. Even if you are, you know, world karate champion or whatever, you know, you go into jujitsu and some skinny little guy smash gets you on the ground, yeah. you don't have a clue what you're doing. Yeah. And I think guys who trained other martial arts, maybe wrestlers aren't or people who've done sambo or something wouldn't or judo wouldn't find it so bad. But if you've done any other martial art which is predominantly standing and you start jujitsu, you pretty much realise that a lot of standing stuff is totally irrelevant to jujitsu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it is a bit, it is a little bit humbling, but you know. I think everyone must go through that moment of of when maybe for you it was when you were getting tapped out those six, seven, eight yeah. times by um, the American guy. But um, it was never dis, it never discouraged me. Yeah, I think everyone must go through that moment where it's just like you've got to make the choice or is this the thing like where you go oh, fuck fuck that I got tapped out seven, eight times I'm going like. No, yeah, well, thing. I think oh, do you go, man, this is crazy. I'm doing this every day. <laughs> no, I, I, and I think a lot of guys, a lot of people, when that happens, they will quit. Mm. I think, you know, I think most people, most people who stick with jujitsu, there seems to be a huge number of quit when they get a blue belt. Mm. And getting a blue belt is an achievement. Yeah? Uh, but I have never, you know, now I've been doing jujitsu 10 years, I've never wanted to quit. I mean, I've had days on the mat where I have got an absolutely smashed, you know, and you come off the mat and you just feel like you've just been pounded and, and everything hurts and you, nothing you've tried has worked and you've been submitted hundreds of times during, a, during a, an hour and a half rolling session. But I never wanted to stop. Nothing has ever said, no, I'm going to stop. Never had that feeling. Yeah. So, wasn't a choice. So it just... Perhaps it's... Perhaps it's hard for me to understand why people have that feeling. I don't. I don't know. But, uh, yeah. My daughter. I'm fortunate. My daughter does jujitsu. My daughter is. She had done boxing in Muay Thai uh, at a gym called Fightworks in Singapore, and she was. She, she'd been doing that for about three years, 
um, she asked me one day if she could try jiu-jitsu I think I was a I would have been blue or maybe I just got my purple belt I can't remember the exact time she asked me she could try jiu-jitsu uh, so I said yeah come along and, and she signed up joined Evolve uh, Evolve had Muay Thai as well at times so she was able to do Muay Thai yeah and do jiu-jitsu but within a couple of months she said to me no more Muay Thai <laughs> jiu-jitsu is so much fun got the hooks in jiu-jitsu is awesome <laughs> and she's been rock solid in jiu-jitsu uh, and now she she got a purple belt at Evolve after five years uh, and then she moved to Hong Kong she now trains at a gym called Espada in Hong Kong, which is run by Professor Rodrigo Caporal. He's under the Atos, Atos group. Right. And she got her brown belt in November, December last year. Oh, I, think, cool. I think she got November or December, she got her yeah, brown belt. Yeah. So before yeah. long, you'll be a father-daughter black belt team. She's, uh, you know, I'm very proud of her. Yeah. You know, I'm very proud of all my kids, but yeah, she's, she's it was great way to bond with your kids yeah. you don't have favorites amongst your kids but no but i don't have favorites <laughs> amongst quick. kids uh, i have a son who lives here in bangkok he's in his uh, early 30s he's married with two of his own kids uh, he likes he likes lizards and frogs i don't know lizards frogs he's never been <laughs> getting into martial arts i have a son in, who still lives in singapore who's in his mid-twenties or kind of late-twenties now. Uh, he boxed for a while uh, and kind of stopped for a while. He's on it. At the moment, he's uh, not boxing, but he did box for uh, three or four years. Mm. And, um, you know, like, uh, Evolve uh, is such like a world-renowned place to train now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but coming from those early days, I guess, like, what do you think brought it from that you know, just an original place like opening up to such a renowned place well, nowadays. Obviously, the, the founder of Evolve, Chatri Sityotong, is an incredible entrepreneur. I mean, if you want to look, no, Rex the Richie stories, go on the internet and Google the guy and find out his life story. You know, he's got Evolve, he was, he was a, I don't know, multi made his millions from Wall Street. Right. But when he was at college, which would be the late 1990s there was a what was called the Asian financial crisis when lots of Asian countries went through a big financial crisis and he ended up basically penniless I think his father's company was from Thailand and his father's company went bust his father ran away left his left the family with nothing uh, he was at Harvard University at the time and he's got an incredible story of surviving on like four four US dollars a day. Um, and then he built himself, going through college, he built himself a multi-billion dollar portfolio on Wall Street. Mm. So, and he gave all that up to open Evolve. Uh, he has this drive he believes in the beauty of martial arts to change lives he believes that the the values that you that you get from martial arts about discipline honor integrity mutual respect are are things that the world needs more of and it's his goal 
to use martial arts to change people's lives. Mm-hmm. And if so, he opened up Evolve, and he was a driving force. And just the passion of the instructors there, he went and he brought in you know, the top Muay Thai fighters of their era, and he's always bringing in new new Muay Thai champions. All his instructors have been Wimpini and Rajdaman Stadium champions. Pretty much all of his jiu-jitsu instructors that he brings in have been world champions or at least silver medalists in the, in the Mundials or Brazilian champions. They're all super high-class guys. And they all have an incredible passion for martial arts. The other thing they all have, pretty much all have in common, is they're all from very humble backgrounds. None of them are wealthy. They're all, they've all come... Like Professor Leandro Brabino, you know, he, was, he used to sell coconuts on the beach you know, <laughs> when he was in his teens. And he credits jiu-jitsu with, with giving him everything, saving his life. Give it, get, he used to be always getting in trouble. And again, if you go on Evolve websites, you'll see they, they do these videos of all their professors and their Muay Thai crews giving some of their life story. And, and some of them are quite touching. You know, mm. How these kids have all gone from being penniless to using martial arts to drag themselves and their families out of poverty and making a, a good life for themselves. Yeah. So it's passion. Uh, that's what kind of brought it from passion. Uh, and you, when you go into Evolve, there's just this, uh, you know, you can't help, it. it's infectious. The atmosphere is infe- infectious. Mm. And it's just grown and grown and grown. So now I think they have three locations in Singapore. They had four, but then one mall where they had a, a gym. Pomo, which was Pomo Mall, which was the original gym. That mall was closed for renovations, so they're moving, they're in the process of moving to another location. Yeah. And I heard that they were going to open a fifth location in Singapore, and they're going to open somewhere overseas, but don't know where. Right. But what what you get at Evolve is an instant feeling of passion for martial arts, passion for self improvement. And that is infectious, isn't it? Like, you know. Absolutely. I remember we once had um, uh, my uh, seminar from Victor Estima, and probably the thing I noticed most about Victor was just how passionate he was. Like, you know, he must have been doing Jiu Jitsu for however long, but like, yeah. he's still every. And we were just doing, we were doing some like uh, Kimura from Side Control, and he's just giving like, yeah. telling us some really basic details, but telling him was like, this is the, you know, yeah. there's such a shit enthusiasm, and it's like, oh. The, the other thing I think that. That, you, that comes across from all those guys is that they are always willing to learn. Mm. You know, they will learn. You know, if a white belt comes in the gym and he, you know, and maybe he's done something else, he comes up with some something that works that they haven't seen before. They're quite open to exploring it and seeing, oh, yeah. does it really work? And if it does, yeah, mm. bring it into your game. Yeah, you can learn from everyone, regardless. One of the big things for me, uh, which you just touched on, for martial arts and, and definitely jiu-jitsu um, is that character development type stuff yes. uh, you know, like the discipline the yeah. mutual respect integrity massive one um, how much do you feel like jiu-jitsu is uh, that kind of stuff compared like how much do you feel you learn about those values as opposed to just like the techniques themselves they're just as important um, and this, w- no go on you answer that I've got a follow up question to discipline it, but, yeah You've got, to, you've got to have discipline, otherwise you're not going to turn up. Mm. You know, you're probably the same as me. Some, some days you get up and you say, I, I don't really want to go train. But it's, that, it's a mental discipline of, I don't want to go, 
but I have to go. Mm. Now, I, d- I don't compete anymore. I don't really run out up until Purple Belt. So it's not as if I have to go because a guy I'm going to compete against in a few months' time. And, you know, there's that mentality for competitors. My competitor's training, so I have to train. Right? But I'm not competing anymore. I go because I want to get better. Yeah? And, I, and now I've had the opportunity to teach. I want my the students I'm teaching to get better. Uh, so you have to be disciplined. And if you if you don't have the discipline, you wait. Ah, I got a sore, I got a sore finger, so I won't go to jujitsu today. It's very easy to say that. Mm. Uh, so the discipline is absolute must. Res- the biggest ones for me were discipline and respect. You know, you can go into a gym uh, as. Okay, I, I'm a black belt now. I can go into a gym and totally smash and some little white belt, whatever. Go maybe totally smash the, the white belt. But what do they get out of it? They get nothing out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they feel humiliated. Right? They get nothing out of it. And I really don't get anything out of it because uh, I might find, oh, it's just a very easy role. So you have to respect your partner. Yeah, and I try to make every time I roll I try to make it so that at least if it's someone that I can handle reasonably easily I try to make sure they get something out of the roll if I'm going against you know like professors here like Morgan then I have to go really <laughs> I have to go really hard because <laughs> he goes hard <laughs> yeah but yeah you know when I roll with you I don't really give you an awful lot yeah, I, I you okay. Give me quite a bit, to be fair. Yeah, but <laughs> but you get something out of the role, and I yeah, get something yeah. out of the role. If I went and just submitted you seven or eight times, you'd feel like oh, and jujitsu is rubbish. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I I hope that when I roll with people, that they can learn something out of the role. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's the way that I maybe if I sweep you, then you learn. Okay, uh, he swept me that by doing that. I won't do that the next time. Yeah. 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 So both partners got to get something out. So you have to respect for your partner. Yeah. You're, and you hear me when I'm teaching. I'm gonna say you're you're not here to hurt your partners. Don't injure your partners. Yeah. Because that's to me that's rule number one. Is yeah. don't injure your partner. Yeah, yeah. And do you feel jujitsu is a tool to develop those character traits, or is it a filter that ends up people that remain are just those kind of people? I think it definitely develops them. Uh, you you can definitely develop. Your, your your mental discipline you can you can obviously develop your physical strength and whatever uh, so you can develop the attributes that you need uh, is it a filter yeah I guess it is I think it is um, guys who don't have mental discipline won't stick it out because a lot of times it's not comfortable and there's always somebody better that, that being said, there are some idiots who still stick around mm. yeah, and kind of like, like some of the attributes or you know, respect, honor, integrity. I guess there are still some people, but that happens in every walk of life. But I think a large number of them are probably filtered out. Mm. Because if you've got a big ego and you can't handle loss, then you won't stick with jiu-jitsu. Or the same if it was wrestling or sambo. Or anything where it's a competitive art, you're not going to stick with it because you're going to get to progress in jiu-jitsu. You have to get, you have to be hammered 
Yeah. And um, how as someone with more life experience than me, do you feel like you mean someone older? <laughs> <laughs> as I'm more a life experience. <laughs> nice. Uh, <laughs> how much do you feel those kind of values you uh, learn through martial arts and jiu-jitsu in this case um, transcend to more everyday life? I think some of the values, uh, I think the hard work ethic was something that I've had before I even got it, before I got into jiu-jitsu or Aikido, it was obviously something that I had uh, and maybe the discipline side was something that I, I had. Um, I think they, they do have gotten stronger, developed them through jiu-jitsu. Uh, there's certainly things that you, you, I think the biggest thing you learn or I've learned is treating other people with respect. Yeah, I think when I when I was working offshore, um, and yeah, I worked really hard, but I was uh, a little bit of a tyrant at times. Honestly, I was a bit of a tyrant. I know it's hard to see that. Right? <laughs> Could leave that professor Colin. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I remember. Um, I worked with a Dutch guy, and he was like six foot four, and maybe 120 kilos. And he said that he found me intimidating. Oh, right. And I'm like five, I'm like five six, five seven, um, 72, 73 kilos. And he found me intimidating. Um, I think uh, through through jujitsu, through being submitted countless times, it's uh, certainly made me more humble and I think I treat people better now it's also it teaches you to handle pressure mm. better yeah definitely yeah. teaches you to handle pressure yeah better. if you can stay calm uh, and I think that's out of jiu-jitsu that's the single biggest thing is the ability to handle pressure if you can stay calm while someone's trying to choke you stay calm and try to figure out how to escape then that has and you do that consistently, then that is going to let, to teach you to stay calm in st- more stressful situations, mm. whether it's on the mat or outside the mat. Yeah, I don't think I, it ever got published, but I wrote a piece for my jiu-jitsu club about, because I was doing like some of their social media stuff uh, for a little while, right. um, and it was just like, on, uh, it's like a little piece of um, something about jiu-jitsu giving that super, superpowers, and there's a bit in there I wrote about how uh, when they were sending the first people into space, like the American mm-hmm. uh, for NASA and stuff, uh, the thing they trained most in, more than anything else, was just problem solving under pressure. Yes. Which is the kind of same thing that jiu-jitsu gives you. It, it is. It's, it's problem solving while someone else is trying to well, <laughs> choke you. <laughs> I can't remember who it was. Somebody. Someone. Someone said, maybe it was John Dana. That it's like trying to solve a Rubik's Cube. But the Rubik's cube is fighting back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's it's, and every role that you have is different. There's mm. no two no two roles are the same, and every so every day you're presented with a new problem. Yeah, it might be a rear naked choke, but it might be on a little bit differently. So it's a different problem. Yeah, and it's a different body. So the same technique, someone, two different people doing the same technique on you feels different. So your reaction will be different. Mm. So it's a different problem. Yeah. I think it's, it's one of the really good skills I think you can learn through jiu-jitsu definitely. It's also one of the things that, you know, uh, like I said with Aikido and, and jiu-jitsu is 
the number the number of possibilities is almost limitless. Mm. Yeah. You saw like today today we were showing what Professor Tiago in his seminar taught last week, which was a, a slightly different way to open the close guard from a kneeling position. He showed a, he showed some things which I hadn't seen before, which he's found work very well for him. But and another guy could come in next week and he'll show another he'll show yeah we show basically the same thing but there'll be a little variation it's limitless it's what works for your body and what works for your body might not work for my body yeah so you have to find the one that works for your body with yeah. that kind of being said like how do you think your game or what what are the important aspects of your jiu-jitsu my jiu-jitsu is quite simple my professors um leandro isa uh, Rodinho is a black belt from Liga Jiu-Jitsu in Brazil. Liga Jiu-Jitsu's logo on the school school logo is old school old school Jiu-Jitsu. Right. Uh, he also trained a lot with uh, Professor Roberto Gordo, the half guard founder of not he's not inventor of the half guard. He's the first person to really develop the half guard. Right. So he's trained a lot with Gordo and Professor Gordinho is Gordo's younger brother. Okay, right. So for the first two years, those were the two instructors I was exposed to. So they're very, what we call old school style. Yeah. On the top, it's absolutely crushing pressure. Mm. Yeah. And on the bottom, they have a half guard game, close guard or half guard game, right? Uh, Gordinho is very good at open guard because he's very tall, rangy, long legs. So I can kind of tend to follow the same. If you notice, my jiu-jitsu would be whatever position I'm in, I will try to get to half guard because I have a lot of confidence that from half guard I can sweep an opponent. But when I'm on top, it's trying to use pressure. Trying to, uh, I try to not to give my opponent space. So I'm not just putting a weight down, I'm kind of trying to lock the hips, shoulders, everything, so that it's very hard for them to move. And then move slow, because I can't move fast. <laughs> yeah. And why is that, say, more important to you than, say, like a, a more dynamic style? Or... Because it's what I can do. Right. I, yeah, I can do, uh, can do a headstand. Yeah. <laughs> and I can use some of those moves, but I can't keep up. Uh, look, I look young kids here who are in their late teens early 20s they're much faster than I am I can't keep up with them so I have to I have to have a game that will shut down yeah. their athleticism and that's mm. keeping everything tight pressure mm. yeah do you think that people's personalities also influence their game they, yeah I'm sure they do yeah, but mine is, is is purely driven by physical ability. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe a non sequitur, but do you have a um, a belt promotion that really stands out in your in your mind? Has Absolutely, my my black belt promotion. Third December two thousand seventeen, uh, I was awarded my black belt by Leandro Bradino, and there were three guys. Uh, being promoted that day two of us were the first two guys we'd started at the same time and evolved as white belts 
and we were being promoted to black belt on the same day. So we were the first people in Evolve to go all the way from white belt to black belt. The third guy being promoted to black belt was an Australian guy who was 60, I think he was 62 years old. His name was uh, Dean, Dean, I can't remember, sorry. Mm. Um, and he'd basically, when I first met him, I was a white belt, he was a blue belt. And he'd trained jiu-jitsu for 20 years before he got his black belt. Wow. And he was 62 years old. He'd moved around from yeah. Australia, Singapore, US. So he moved around and he trained with lots of different places. Yeah. People. And he came back, he was a blue belt. He was in Evolve for a while, then he moved overseas. He came back to Evolve as a purple belt and he moved again overseas and he came back as a brown belt. And when he came back as a brown belt, he was there for a while and then he got promoted to black belt at Evolve. Uh, so that promotion. Uh, we had, each of us had to make a, a little speech, of course, and I actually had to stop because I teared up. Yeah? Uh, but it was, it was good. And, uh, it was did, you, did you know you were getting promoted that day? Was it like, um, uh, was yeah, it a surprise? Yeah, I, I knew I was getting promoted. Evolve had a, like twice a year. Okay. They, they do their promotions on that twice a year. Right. Uh, and the professor had told me like the previous week, he said, be there at the promotion. <laughs> He didn't say you're getting a bike belt, <laughs> but when he says be there at the promotion, yeah, yeah. you know you're being promoted. So, but yeah, that that was because it was you know it was kind of the the culmination of yeah, it's a huge step in jujitsu. You know, it's a lot of work to get a black belt. Doesn't mean I'm any better. You know, the day before I got my black belt and the day after I got my black belt, I wasn't any particularly better at anything. I didn't just. Yeah. suddenly you get superpowers or whatever <laughs> you know it's it's just a it's a recognition that you've put in the hours and that in jiu-jitsu terms all it means is that you know the basics yeah you know the basics reasonably well yeah uh, but it doesn't mean that i'm superstar or anything is there another like achievement in your life that you could compare that to uh, birth of my children <laughs> I think at the time, yeah, I remember saying, yeah, the birth of my children was the only other occasion in my life that made me cry. Mm. Yeah, and it's yeah just, birth of my kids. Yeah, I mean, uh, so for someone like for me, I mean, that makes completely sense that someone yeah. would tear up doing the black belt promotion because you sink so much emotion throughout those well, ten years or how many years were you? That was eight and a half eight years. Eight and a half years. But that was like training. Typically, at least five days yeah. a week, sometimes and with, six. Uh, Nine-year history of, of martial two, arts and, before. Yeah, happens. And two or three hours a day. Uh, so it's a lot of hours. It's a lot of effort put in. It's a lot of emotion. It's, it's a lot of emotion. It's a lot of friendships. It's a lot of you know. Uh, but by the time I got there, there were there were a lot of guys that I had started with who were still training. But there were even more guys that had started with who had quit, you know. Mm. You know. Uh, so it's, it's not an easy thing. It's a hard road. You know? yeah. um, and anyone who, if you stick with it, you'll get your black belt. You don't need to have any great physical abilities or athletic abilities. Absolutely, they help. But if you stick with it and you just turn up and train, just stick with with the ritual humiliation and beatdowns and 
you will get your black belt. Yeah. And you will get better. Yeah. The belt is just a recognition that you have got a certain standard. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that you put in the hours and you, you, you know basics. But there's, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's more for me to learn in jiu-jitsu than I've learned so far, right? It's, yeah. It's limitless. Absolutely. How do you feel your relationship with jiu-jitsu has changed now you're um, teaching? Like well, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm fortunate that, uh, through Morgan here at Bangkok Fight Lab that I'm he's uh, been kind enough to allow me to teach a couple of classes a week. Uh, I think my jiu-jitsu has improved because of my teaching. Because now I have to, I have to analyze everything I'm going to teach. So, and I have to anticipate what I'm going to be asked. So I have to be able to explain why things work, why things don't work. What do you do? What, but coach, what do I do if, what do I do if? I have to have answers. So I have to be, I have to think about it more. Um, so is that, doing that, or having to think about all the techniques has definitely improved my jujitsu. Uh, but I still like to train, but I, I think I hope it comes across in my classes that I want the students to do well. Like I, I think in my classes I push the students real, quite hard, yeah. um, but that's driven out of wanting them to improve. Yeah, I'm not trying to, you know, be a bully or anything. I just want the students to improve, and I, I can only teach the way that I was taught. And sometimes maybe the classes can be a bit tough, but you know that's the way I was taught. The instructors push you where I was training. The instructors would push you as far as they, they know how far they can push you, so they would push you to your limit. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes an instructor can know your limit better than you will know your own as well. Yeah, so sometimes you'll try to stop yourself before you're giving it. Yeah, uh, but the instructor will know how far you can go, and exactly, they're, they're, yeah. a, a good instructor will know that you can go a little bit further. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I've, I've been very fortunate. I mean, I've so I've trained it and got my black belt to evolve. Uh, I was very fortunate because they have an amazing bunch of instructors there. And what is it um, you like to see from um, students nowadays? Like, is there something that you kind of pick up on and go, "Ah, oh, yes, that's that's exactly what I wanted to see from this person," or or, or is it more nuanced than that? Or? Um. What you what you tend to pay attention to it's inevitable that you're going to pay attention to some students more than others mm. you know in theory yes every student should get the same amount of attention but I think every instructor will see that not every student has got the same drive and intensity I'm not meaning aggression right I mean like drive to learn mm. some people are doing jiu-jitsu everyone's doing it for different reasons some people are doing it just for a little bit of exercise. Right. Um, and other students, other students here are doing it because they want to compete. So, I think you tend to. I know that you tend to give a little bit more focus to the students who are maybe wanting to compete, or you see are putting a bit more effort into the jiu-jitsu than the others. So I've always got to correct myself. No, you give this. Pay attention to everyone. Um, 
I want the students to get better. You know, if, if I can roll with a student today and then in six months' time roll with that student and the, they give me a harder time, then I've done my job. They, they, and does that kind of give you like a, a warm and fuzzy feeling? Absolutely. Yeah. It gives me a buzz, man. You know? <laughs> and it helps my jujitsu. Yeah. You know, uh, it helps my jujitsu if the students challenge me. 